a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. So, yeah, I took a day off on Friday. My voice was getting just a little bit hammered. It happens when the weather changes. I don't know why, but that's usually a signal for my body to say, okay, let's get our first cold of the season. Just kind of set the tone for what winter's going to be like. But uh, I think I'm on the mend. I think I've got my voice back, and it's a good thing because there's a lot to talk about today, and I wouldn't want to miss a bit of it. If you're joining us for the very first time, welcome to my show. Uh, if you're wondering who I am, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm really nobody. I'm just a guy who believes that the truth matters. I do my best to find credible, timely information and then share it with my audience. What you do with that information, of course, though, is up to you. There's no uh, insistence that you have to agree with whatever I'm sharing. I hope it makes sense, but, you know, ultimately, you're the one who has to call the shots. You are the best fact checker for your life. I wouldn't presume to uh, take that responsibility on myself. So, let's dive right in. And uh, again, if, you, if you're new to the show, this is all about learning to think more clearly, more independently, how to stand your ground in a world that seems determined to make you less free on a day-to-day basis. So if you're a traditionalist, for instance, you probably felt pretty outnumbered and isolated. Got some great ideas here from Candace McManaman. This is from intellectualtakeout.org. Creating a traditionalist community. Now, Candace says it's easy to feel isolated these days, and it's especially lonely for those of us who are conservative or religious or traditionalist persons. We don't usually get to choose our social environments, and we find few, if any, true kindred spirits in our school and college years or later in our careers. Social media seems to have replaced real friendship, leaving us lonelier than ever. And yet, she says, community is something we as traditionalists truly value and desire. So how do we build connections with like-minded people? In fact, how do we even find these people in the first place? I think this is a really timely subject, and I'm glad she wrote about this. Candace McManaman says, when it comes to finding other traditionalists, the best place is the best starting point, rather, is to explore new places or events that naturally attract us. Now, these will draw others who inherently share at least a little common ground. A fantastic option is to find an existing group or community where others are already gathering. Now, it can take some digging around to find these groups, of course. She says, for example, when I was in college, all the flyers and posters around campus were for sporting events, travel programs, or parties. But with some searching online, she says, I found a thriving Newman Center and adoration group just a block away from campus. So for all its faults, the internet gives us a leg up on finding communities which we wouldn't otherwise encounter on our daily paths. Then, when we found a group that interests us, she says the natural thing is to attend one of their meetings or events. Now, this can feel uncomfortable, but it's a non-negotiable step away from isolation. We have to leave our comfort zones if we want to meet potential new friends. She says, a trick my sister learned in her early working years was when she was looking to meet others who shared her values, 
to attend multiple meeting groups in nearby locations, or nearby group meetings, rather, in nearby locations. And she says, I would add, attend the same event more than once. It's like going on dates. Sure, a first date is night is nice, but in order to really kick our romantic gears, our romantic lives rather into gear, we should go out on many first dates and try for second dates too. Meeting potential new friends requires the same adventurous persistence. Okay, next she talks about from perfect strangers to actual friends. Now this is the awkward phase of meeting people. There's no getting around it, but there are three tricks to make it easier. The first is to buddy up. It's worlds easier to try out a new place and meet new people when we have an existing friend by our side. Now, the only danger we should watch out for is falling into the trap of talking only to our friend rather than networking with others. And the second tip is to get really good at introducing ourselves. We need to be able to strike up a conversation with the people we've worked so hard to meet. So dust off those social skills and put on a smile. Most people will be happy to meet us if we're happy to meet them. Now she says the third tip is swapping contact information and following up with new acquaintances. Yes, we can swap Instagram handles or whatever online media we use, but a much more useful option is trading phone numbers. It's better to text new acquaintances directly or even call them rather than just be Facebook friends. We should follow up with our new acquaintances afterwards. Let's remind them of our names and where we met and invite them somewhere. Perhaps they'd like to attend church with us next week or go for a walk on the weekend. Maybe we could share a lunch break or a study session. The point is to open the doors to reconnection. Next, she talks about building lasting communities. So let's say our local group options are a little lackluster. Or let's say we've successfully met some new acquaintances but rarely see them and can't seem to get a friendship off the ground. This is where starting our own group or even a club comes into play. When meeting with a group, our time is used much more efficiently since we get a chance to connect with multiple people all at the same time. Plus, conversations are easier since the social spotlight can bounce around rather than being trained on one individual. And finally, a group offers a fantastic testing ground for deeper friendships. So back to the dating analogy. Spouses often meet as friends of friends at some event. Over time, they naturally find themselves drawn to each other, and the rest is history. Similarly, many friends meet in the context of a group and find themselves forming a deeper connection over time. So arranging a group is quite easy. She says start by picking a shared activity or interest, then find a place or two to hold regular meetings. For instance, she says she's part of a delightful book club. We meet every other month at each other's houses or at the local library. She says, in all honesty, we only talk about the chosen book for 10 or 15 minutes. The rest of the time, we invest in our friendships, catching up on our lives and interests. The real need to label this a book club centers on giving us a reason to schedule a hangout. Having a label on our groups officializes them, which in turn helps us prioritize them. And she says any interest can suffice to form a group. Bible studies, hiking trips, prayer chains, fitness events, homeschooling, co-ops, uh, youth group activities, mom's day out brunches, poetry readings, music jam sessions. It's quite a list. And it goes on and on. Now her point is, all in all, the only way that a man is truly an island is if he chooses to sit down in the sand waiting for someone to show up on shore and rescue him. And then, of course, he will remain an island. 
but almost all of us are capable of building bridges between islands. All we must do is try. And she says, nobody's going to do the work for us, and really, it's not as daunting as we might think. Candace McManaman says, I truly believe there are thriving communities out there for all of us, just waiting for willing hands to build them. Now, that may seem like kind of a trite place to start. Well, okay, and this is going to solve the world's problems. How? Well, that's a good question. It's a fair question. I think with all of the different challenges that are shaping up, and I'm not going to you know, go into the deep, dark fears of here's what's going to happen, but economically, we're sitting on some pretty thin ice. Monetarily, same thing. There could be some very serious financial upheaval, if not financial pain for all of us in the near future. Geopolitically, you know, the world is just, it's just, it's just waiting for the formalities, okay? The, the wars have, have started and, uh, you know, we, we may encounter scarcity, we may encounter hardship. My point is simply this. Given that we are headed into the, the deep climactic crisis of this fourth turning, this would be a really good time to build your community. People who think like you, people who value the same things that you do. I know it's, but we got to find the most fanatical ones. No, you don't. You just, you just got to find people who share the same values that you do. And it can start so simple. You know, you can, you can have a small group of, of friends who have similar interests. Maybe it's gardening, maybe it's canning, something. Just build around that. But I think the time to do it is now. This is the time to, to get your tribe together. This is the time to learn who you can trust. And I'm not trying to be cryptic here. I'm not trying to, you know, pretend, you know, the as the apocalypse descends upon us and we stagger through the ruins in our rags. I'm just saying in tough times, whether they're mildly tough or really tough, having a community of people who share the same traditional ideals, morality, and uh, principles as you, it's going to make things a lot easier. I know, none of us wants to be a burden on anybody, right? We're going to lone wolf McQuaid our way through all of this. I don't think that's going to happen. I think what we're going to do is we're going to help each other through these times, and we'll be better for it, but that help is going to be really needed. So put that community together now. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I don't watch a lot of, uh, in fact, I don't watch any of the talking head shows about what's going on in Washington these days. I probably should. I catch a few news clips here and there on X, formerly Twitter. But uh, I just, I don't want to know what they're saying. Not so much that I'm trying to hide from it, but just, it's lies. If they're talking, they're, they're going to be lying. And especially now that there's war, you know, well, oh, this is why we're here, you know, to, to make sure that we're here to protect everybody and get everybody online. And it's, it's really kind of a crazy time. And I love J.B. Shirk's latest article on AmericanThinker.com about how American patriots have grown war-wise. 
He says, Lindsey Graham, the bellicose South Carolina senator, full of empty conservative promises and love of mass amnesty for illegal aliens, responded to the Hamas terror attacks in Israel by promptly calling for the U.S. military to attack Iran and destroy its oil refineries. Now, of all the ways we could cripple Iran's or Joe Biden's financing of Hamas, forbidding Barack Obama, Joe Kerry, and Joe Biden from handling from handing the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism billions of dollars each year would seem an excellent start, but Graham goes straight to the option that will see already exorbitantly high oil prices skyrocket even further. It sure is perplexing how every policy proposal coming from D.C., regardless of nominal party affiliation, conveniently advances Klaus Schwab's Great Reset Agenda to make private car ownership unaffordable and windmill-powered scooter rentals slightly more appealing. Graham wants $500 a barrel oil and a new religious war in the powder keg that's the Middle East. Quite the splashy platform for winning over the hippie, Birkenstock-wearing, earth-worshipping slice of the electorate dedicated to waging war against people of color. Shirk says, while Sean Penn and Hollywood's other mental midgets push oil prices up with their steadfast support for death and slaughter in Ukraine, Graham will do the same with his sights set on Iran. And the new Green Deal cult will continue to profit from its own unspoken creed, make war, not love, in order to save the planet. Now, of course, Graham's target audience is not American peaceniks turned Ukraine war hawks, but rather American patriots willing to shed blood for their countrymen. He seeks to use patriots' love of God and country to dupe them into fighting for higher oil prices while tap-dancing into yet another endless war with unclear mission objectives and vague definitions of victory. After a decade-plus of Obama, Biden, and Kerry propping up the Ayatollah's Nazi state with pallets of cash and undeserved political clout, shouldn't the Iran appeasers be the first ones shoved to the front lines for any future conflict? Before American patriots risk life and limb for D.C.'s deadly policies, shouldn't those most responsible for elevating Iran's evil regime to the nuclear club first pay the debt they owe to the rest of the world for their misguided, if not malevolent, assistance in making Khamenei's theocratic dictatorship even more dangerous? But he says, fat chance of that happening. It's Washington's errant policymakers who always march us into war with their malfeasance, but it's ordinary Americans who ultimately pay the price. And while the permanent ruling class makes a fortune selling U.S. government influence to our enemies, those same Potomac princeling, princelings rather find a way to hide far back of the pack when hostilities draw near. They cheerlead for war, but witness its viciousness only on television screens from the safety of brown leather fainting couches and with the liquid courage that perpetual happy hour provides. Now, J.B. Shirk reminds us here, and this is probably worth bringing up, war felt like an excellent idea after 9-11, too. After several decades of intermittent Islamic terror attacks on American tourists or embassies, barracks, and vessels, 9-11's murderous wreckage briefly united the country in common desire for retribution. Responding to a multi-pronged sneak attack comparable to Pearl Harbor seemed righteous and necessary, and patriots quickly volunteered for the fight. For their service and sacrifice, however, he says the U.S. has been an untrustworthy partner. American families spent two decades fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, leaving their families behind for years at a time, 
only to have Obama hand the former over to Iranian sympathizers and Biden hand the latter right back to the Taliban. Taxpayers spent trillions of dollars to decisively defeat Islamic terrorism around the world, only to watch that malignant evil posing as a religion mutate into the equally lethal variants spreading today. After the briefest period of moral clarity in which office holders railed against political Islamism, false accusations of Islamophobia eventually became more rampant than the needed denouncements of Islamic extremism. Even after 19 9-11 hijackers took advantage of America's lax immigration laws to carry out their attack, the federal government has still done nothing to secure our borders or deport the tens of millions of unvetted illegal aliens who continue to arrive. One of the rallying cries in the early years of the Iraq or Afghan wars were that we would either fight them over there or over here. Well, after resettling into the continental U.S., hundreds of thousands of displaced migrants from those war zones, some deserving refugees to be sure, but entirely too many who should be on terrorist watch lists, it's becoming regretfully clear that fighting them over there has meant that we will also be fighting them over here in the not-so-distant future. Perhaps most devastating for the long-term survival of the United States, all of the post-9-11 security enhancements reportedly, purportedly geared toward preventing Islamic terrorism, we're talking from the Patriot Act to the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, have been transformed into tools for unconstitutionally spying on Americans, minimizing their freedoms, censoring their, censoring their speech, criminalizing their dissent, and labeling them as domestic terrorists. An entire generation of Americans has not only been conditioned to let TSA screeners pat them down at the airport, but also to permit the federal government to determine what can be written online and spoken out loud. Now, Department of Homeland Security and other intelligence agencies regularly conduct disinformation campaigns against the American people, while simultaneously censoring Americans who notice. From promoting democracy abroad to saving democracy at home, the national security surveillance state serves only to preserve and amplify the power of the federal government, with hostile disregard for what American citizens have to say. After 9-11, had the U.S. government told Americans, we will sacrifice thousands of American warriors, leave tens of thousands suffering from wounds for the rest of their lives, waste trillions of dollars and inflict extensive damage on the civilian populations of Iraq and Afghanistan as collateral damage only to invite our former enemies to resettle across the country, further weaken the nation's porous borders, increase oil prices, use the Patriot Act to harass salt-of-the-earth Americans, and accuse anybody still upset about 9-11 of being a hateful racist. We wouldn't have spent the last two decades at war. Americans would have buried their dead, said their prayers, and figured out how to replace the permanent ruling class occupying D.C. with new representatives more faithful to their constitutional oaths and more concerned with preserving the freedoms and security of the people. So the 9-11 Islamic terror attacks wounded America, but the federal government's response to those attacks has inflicted permanent damage. At best, Subsequent war plans and national security reforms were ill-conceived. At worst, they were calculated intentional usurpations of Americans' rights and freedoms under the guise of patriotic duty. So that being the case, whenever a chicken hawk such as Lindsey Graham starts clucking for war, prudent Americans should ask serious questions. What would a war in Iran look like? What is the ultimate objective? Is it achievable? 
What's the potential for unacceptable collateral damage or unjustifiably risky retaliation? Would American warriors be given the weapons and authority to engage the enemy effectively, or would they be forced to tie one hand behind their backs, as they have in almost every drawn-out conflict since World War II? Are we fighting to win decisively and quickly, or will warriors be made to serve as part of an occupying force? Would war with Iran require resettling half of Iran's population inside the United States? Will the federal government use its war footing to further deprive Americans of their rights and liberty? After a couple decades of brutal consequences, he says, American patriots have grown wise. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, half the fun of this program is just encouraging people to think. And half the fun of encouraging people to think is knowing that it's not always comfortable. So I'm going to I'm going to launch into a topic here that I know is going to make some people uncomfortable, but I think this is the good kind of discomfort. I guess we'll see when we get to the uh, the end of the article. This is from Corey DeAngelis, who has been tirelessly out there fighting for school choice across the country and has, has done a pretty good job from what I'm seeing. It's, it's catching on in a number of states. This is an article from 2016 that he wrote for the Foundation for Economic Education. It's titled, Legalizing Discrimination Would Improve the Education System. I know, legalizing discrimination, what? The subheadline here is that policymakers should realize that there are types of discrimination that are actually beneficial for teachers, students, and the rest of society. So Corey reminds us school choice programs around the world prohibit discrimination in hiring employees and enrolling students. While discrimination policies aim to protect employees and children, the result is the opposite. Discrimination in hiring employees increases the likelihood that children are educated by teachers that are aligned with their interests and abilities. Discrimination in enrolling students increases the probability that all students are in a successful, specialized learning environment. So here's the case that he's trying to make, and I think he does a good job of this. Unhealthy discrimination hurts producers. So we can all agree that the intentions behind this policy are well-meaning, right? We don't want to go to public, we don't want public funding, rather, to go to schools run by malevolent people. So let's assume that the people running private schools are indeed racist, sexist, evil individuals. Even if we allow all types of discrimination, the evil individuals in charge of private schools will financially pay for the act. So for example, let's assume that the people in charge of school X are racist. They can choose to hire a teacher of race one or race two. If they are racist against race two, they will likely choose to hire race one regardless of the actual quality of the teacher. If an alternative school, Y, does not practice the same discrimination, they will benefit by having a larger pool of teacher candidates. Ultimately, this would lead to a competitive advantage for school Y not being racist. Families would recognize this advantage, choose school Y, and force school X to face a shutdown condition. Allowing families to choose their schools will only work to eliminate unhealthy discrimination, such as racism in hiring. 
So let's talk next about healthy discrimination. Some types of discrimination are actually beneficial to teachers, students, and the rest of society. When a school has a specialized mission and focus, it needs to be able to hire specialized individuals. Protecting candidates that would not be able to help the achieve the specialized mission of the organization harms the other teachers and students in the school. So imagine a given school that has a mission of academic success for various types of athletes. Forcing the school to hire teachers and enroll students that do not have a sports-related background will work against the overall mission. Since the students are interested in academics and sports, it may be desirable to relate class relations to different sports activities. For example, a physics teacher could incorporate exercises based on movement and force of a football or softball over time. If a candidate is unable to demonstrate sufficient background knowledge on sports, they would not be able to make classes engaging for the students. Protecting candidates from this type of discrimination will only hurt the students. Additionally, he says the school would need to be able to discriminate based on the ability levels and learning styles of the incoming students. If we force the school to accept all athletes, the academic mission would be sure to fail. Protecting the students with low academic abilities will hurt the advanced students and make the teacher's job extremely difficult. Perhaps even more importantly, protecting these students may actually result in hurting them the most. Placing these low-performing students in this environment would likely not be suitable for their individual academic needs. Being exposed to this highly competitive academic environment could actually hurt their confidence levels and prevent them from learning. Although there are certain types of unhealthy discrimination, it's not optimal for bureaucrats to determine which types are permissible for the rest of society. Instead, we should allow families in society to choose the schools that do not partake in the discriminatory practices that they deem to be non-permissible. Additionally, policymakers should realize that there are types of discrimination that are actually beneficial for teachers, students, and the rest of society. I don't think it would fly too well with the woke crowd, but I think he's got a good point there. Probably something to, uh, to keep in mind going to be very interested to see how school choice plays out here in uh, the next legislative session in uh, my home state of Idaho. All right, moving on. So I know a lot of eyes have been watching Israel, right? That's That's been dominating the news cycle. While you were watching Israel, there are a few things you probably missed. Kit Knightley from OffGuardian.org says the uh, latest war is perfect camouflage for the Great Reset. So apparently authors of an agenda article for the World Economic Forum published on September 28th, the need for a new approach to digital identity. Something that uh, I've been warning about a little bit on this program. Digital ID has been in the news a lot, says Kit Knightley, obscured for the past week in the midst of the Israel-Hamas situation. Last month, the United Nations Developments Program published its legal guidelines for digital IDs, as well as mobilizing global leadership with a $400 million fund to empower digital identity programs in over 100 countries. Now, various nations are already making steps in that direction. Multiple U.S. states are already either issuing, issuing digital IDs or planning to in the near future, as are Kenya, Somalia, Bhutan, and Singapore. Austria's system is going online in December. 
Just last week, Forbes Australia published its guide as to what Australians need to know about digital IDs. And Nine News reported they could be in place as soon as next year. Now, just two days ago, the Journal of Australian Law Society predicted the same thing. Meanwhile, also in Australia, the world's 21st largest bank is charging is changing its terms and conditions to allow it to debank customers. This is what you need to pay attention to. The November Australian Bank's revised terms and conditions go into force November 1st and include, in Clause 11, NAB may close your account at any time at its discretion. Now, the reasons it would consider enforcing, enforcing Clause 11 make for interesting reading. Quote, NAB can take a range of things into account when exercising its rights and discretions. These include NAB's, this is National Australian Bank's, public statements, including those relating to protecting vulnerable persons, the environment, or sustainability, and community expectations, and any impact on NAB's reputation. So, as of November 1st, National Australian Bank reserves the right to debank you if you get canceled or say something they don't approve of about climate change or vulnerable people. Now, in the UK, it was just two days ago, it was reported that government is planning to upload every passport photo in their records to a facial recognition database. At the same time, despite record profits for energy companies last winter, the UK government reports they need to further increase energy bills to prevent energy companies from going bust. Two days ago, Japan announced it would be trading carbon credits on its stock exchange, and some Japanese firms are introducing a digital currency specifically for the settlement of clean energy certificates. Just yesterday, India announced the launch of, uh, of trial wholesale digital currency, and South China Morning Post reported a new hard wallet for SIM-based CBDC payments, a joint project between the Bank of China and Chinese telecommunication giants. Back to Australia, where it was reported October 12th that MasterCard and Reserve Bank of Australia had successfully trialed the interoperability of CBDC systems while ensuring that the pilot CBDC can be held, used, and redeemed only by authorized parties. MasterCard's report also notes the benefits of CBDCs are programmability, transparency, and compliance. Oh boy. Oh, and a new study says eating bugs is good for your metabolism. So that's progress on global, global digital IDs, debanking for wrong think, mass surveillance and facial recognition, inflated energy prices, carbon credits, programmable digital currency, currency rather, and eating the bugs. All from the last couple of weeks, mostly from the last few days. So here's just a reminder or a series of reminders, says Kit Knightley, that the Great Reset didn't stop. It just faded into the background. It's what they're doing with their hand behind their back while they wave the other in front of our faces. I suppose that's pretty good advice. Anytime you've got something absolutely dominating the news cycle, I would say the Israel-Hamas thing is pretty much dominating it. It's always good to say, what is this keeping me from seeing? And thank you to Kit Knightley for pointing out just a few of those uh, things that we might be overlooking at the moment. All right, we'll take a quick break. Back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. So let's take a little bit of time in this last segment. I'm going to share the article of the day. This is from Brandon Smith. Boy, he's, this is like three in a week. But the man has some great articles. What can I say? And if you want to better understand the long history of conflict in the Middle East and the current calls to war, why they are a trap, I would recommend this latest essay from Brandon Smith. He talks about the wave of repercussions as the Middle East fights the last war. Now, Brandon says, few people are familiar with a little event around 1200 B.C. called the Bronze Age Collapse in the region known as the Levant, now known as the Middle East. He says, most folks are taught that history and progress travel in a straight line and that each generation improves upon the culture and innovations of previous generations. Now, this delusion is constructed around a Smithsonian-influenced view of the past, In reality, history tends to go in a circle or a spiral with innovation leading to ease, ease leading to laziness and corruption, and corruption leading to weakness and collapse. Over and over again, humanity reaches for its Elysium on Earth only to be slapped back down. And the survivors then build grass huts upon top of the ruins of the old empires, and they start over from scratch. So why does the Bronze Age catastrophe matter? Well, he says, obviously, because history tends to rhyme. Now, the Levant at this time was rich with civilization and trade. He's talking at 1200, I think it's 1200 uh, B.C. He says there was a host of kingdoms that represented the known world, including the Egyptians, Babylonians, Minoans, uh, Mycenaeans, uh, Hittites, and so forth. They had vast economic networks, agriculture, industry, written libraries, The proximity of the kingdoms allowed for such extensive trade relations that this period is often referred to by modern historians as the first globalized economy. Sound familiar? What took centuries to build was destroyed in a single generation by a series of disasters. A mega drought caused kingdoms without consistent water resources to lose agricultural production, leading to widespread famine and disease. Yes, The climate canon does change dramatically regardless of human carbon footprint. Trade was disrupted by internal disputes, and a mysterious invasion of a group of roaming raiders called the Sea People is documented as a primary factor in collapse. Now, the Sea People attacked numerous kingdoms, but many of them were also refugees flooding into the region. They disrupted cultures and economies and dragged a number of empires into the dust. And this all happened in less than 30 years. Sadly, because only the elites of these civilizations were able to read and write, languages and historic documentation were lost. This initiated a dark age which lasted for centuries. Humanity was set back essentially to zero while scratching and surviving among temples and pyramids of past generations. Brandon says they must have looked up at those decaying marvels of architecture from hundreds of years ago and wondered, what the hell happened to us? Now, not everything perished, of course. The Egyptian dynasties were in decline, but they managed to hold together far better than their counterparts across the Levant. However, the event represented a setback to human knowledge that was detrimental. One might suggest that if the Bronze Age collapse never occurred, we might be a space-born species traveling the stars by now. Then again, maybe these cultures were so corrupt that they needed to fail so that something better could be built in their place. So, what does any of this have to do with the state of the Middle East today? 
Well, Brandon Smith says the smart readers out there surely see what I'm getting at. The intricate relationships and trade mechanisms of the Bronze Age led to great wealth and prosperity, but they were terribly fragile. The same interdependency resulted in their demise as they tumbled like dominoes on top of each other. The globalization and collectivist warmongering of today is leading to a similar worldwide implosion. Our irrational ties to foreign entanglements and economies could very well destroy civilization again. Consider what we're about to see as the Israel-Palestine war unfolds. Now he says, if you were wondering what the October surprise was going to be, well, now you know. And he talks about how he doesn't care about either side. Now he says, I care about individuals, innocent citizens rather, civilians. But other than that, he says, the war is irrelevant. I am American. I care about American, America rather. Same goes for Ukraine and Russia. Those wars are not our wars. And I'm highly suspicious every time our political leaders try to lure us into choosing a side where foreigners start shooting each one foreigner starts shooting each other. And he, he says it very clearly. All wars are banker wars. So the Israelis enjoy our money, but they have a history of proven illicit operations to lure us into war. USS Liberty, anyone? The Palestinians and most of the Muslim world despise the West and Christianity in general. And he says, I don't really care who started it. The fact remains our cultures are completely incompatible. This is not going to change. Just because we happen to find common ground on fighting back against the insane trans agenda doesn't mean I'm willing to accept draconian Sharia law in my community. Both sides, he says, use tactics that deliberately target civilians. I'm not talking about collateral damage like we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm talking about groups that are consciously, brazenly engaged in plans for genocide. Bottom line, there are no good guys to join with. It's a complete crap show of ancient tribal nonsense, nonsense rather, that Westerners should stay away from. Now, for those that disagree, he says, ask yourselves this. Are you truly willing to pick up a rifle and fly to Israel or Gaza to fight and die for either side? And if so, then go do it. Stop demanding that others do it for you. And if not, then shut up. He says, here's what's going to happen. The establishment is going to force Americans and Europeans into these wars regardless. The corporate media and some political leaders are already suggesting the recent full-scale attack on Israel was planned by governments outside of Gaza. Some are accusing Iran, some accuse Lebanon. From the extensive amount of footage that he's examined, he says, I have no doubt that someone other than the Palestinians orchestrated the event. The tactics were far too advanced, far too coordinated, and the Palestinians have never been all that smart when it comes to military strategy. Now, who drafted the attack? That's another question entirely. There are lots of rumors, but no hard evidence leading to any specific governments. And the other big question, how did the Palestinians manage to organize all this and execute the invasion without Israeli intel services knowing about it? Mossad is known to be one of the most intrusive, pervasive, covert agencies in the world, yet they were caught completely off guard by this unprecedented attack? He says, yeah, I think not. He says, I'm reminded of the events of 9-11 and the strange series of intelligence failures that preceded it. I'm also reminded of the lies, propaganda, and reactionary response, which led to two decades of meaningless war. So he says, I'm going to call it here. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to hear that many of the soldiers involved in the incursion were not 
Palestinian. They'll claim some of them are from Iran, Syria, Lebanon, etc. There will be intel that says Iran was a major backer of the plan. Wall Street Journal's already claiming this is the case, but they have not compiled any or have not provided any compelling proof just yet. A U.S. carrier strike group is on the way to the region now. This is just the beginning. Europeans will be pressured to go to war. American conservatives in particular will be waterboarded with propaganda telling us that an attack on Israel is an attack on the U.S. It'll be a lot like the rhetoric neocons and leftists used during the initial invasion of Ukraine, but multiplied by a thousand. And to be clear, both Biden and Trump have been rattling sabers and testing the waters of war, so don't think that we can avoid this thing simply by voting. Now, he talks about how Israel's going to pound Gaza into gravel, but there's also the possibility of multiple fronts being opened up, including Lebanon, Iran, Syria, all engaging in Israel not being able to fight them all. He talks about uh, the BRICS nations may be compelled to get involved. Now, this may not be on a kinetic level, but there is a chance. Russia has strategic security treaties with Iran and Syria, China has numerous economic interests and influence in the region as the world's largest importer and exporter. These nations might retaliate with the same kind of financial warfare that the West used against Russia, with China and BRICS cutting off the dollar as the world reserve currency. This would add to the crippling inflation we're already experiencing. Then, of course, there's the possibility of closure of the Straits of Hormuz. Uh, there could be skyrocketing oil prices, terrorist attacks, and, and uh, also uh, false flags. A push for a new draft. Very interesting stuff. Bottom line is, Brandon says, I believe the real war is yet to truly start. And this, that is the war to erase the globalists from existence. They want us to fight overseas in endless quagmires in hopes that we will die out. But he says, and when we do, there will be no one left to oppose them. It's a predictable strategy, but its success is doubtful. Oh, by the way, another interesting fact about the Bronze Age collapse. The elites were one of the first groups to be wiped out after the system broke down. Got a link to his article in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. See it for yourself at the BrianHydeShow.com. This is the Brian Hyde Show.